Good morning, everyone. So wish we could just keep singing that song over and over and over. What a powerful song. What powerful lyrics. Thanks for your patience today as we're working through our new sound system. You're going to hear buzzes like that uh, for a Sunday or two until we get everything EQ'd. But I hope you can hear. I'd like to get a hallelujah from the people under the balcony if you can hear this morning. Oh, I got a... You got some hand raising going on back there. It's so good. So that's, that's fantastic. Well, we rejoice in your generosity as a church. And, uh, you know, it's just a means to a gospel end. Things like sound systems and pews and lights. But we got to have them if we're going to be in a place like this where we can be about the business of good news. I want to start our time this morning by showing you one of my prized possessions. It's a pair of knitted socks. You may think, boy, you don't set the bar very high when it comes to prized possessions, Greg. Well, there's a reason this particular pair of socks, there's a reason they're very special to me. These were hand-knitted by an older woman in Ukraine. And on my first trip over, uh, she gave these to me as a gift. Now... When she was knitting these, she was with a group of ladies who, as they made their hand stitches, prayed for whoever would receive these, and they make dozens of them a month. At the time when this particular woman was knitting, she had not yet been baptized, but she was hanging around women who knew Jesus and were followers of Jesus. While we were there, I saw her baptized into Christ. And this past year, her husband was baptized. And so I share that story with you this morning um, because it, it just is so humbling to me at the, the power of prayer and also what happens when we choose to, to step into other spaces and other places as we are the hands and feet of Jesus. I'll tell you a little bit more about that story in just a bit, but before we get there, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever had somebody say something about you that wasn't true? If it's ever happened to you, can I get an oh yeah? Yeah. So all of us can relate, right? All of us can relate to those times in our lives when somebody said something about us that just isn't true. And whether it's because of their insecurity or their need to get ahead or they don't have full understanding of what's going on and so they make assumptions or maybe it's just gross immaturity, for whatever reason, that person or a group of people decided that they just needed to throw you under the bus. Have you ever been there? Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, if you've been in that situation, you are able to relate to the Apostle Paul. And we're going to see in today's text, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 24. What Paul chooses to do in response to those who 
discredited his authority or at least made an attempt to, who lied about him and lied about his motives, or who decided that, that it was more important to have the spotlight shined on them than to have the spotlight shined on Jesus. This is Paul's response to what's happening in the book of Colossians, or what's happening in Colossae as he writes the book of Colossians. He says, now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in all its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. So that's the whole of the passage that we're going to take a look at this morning. What I would like to do over the next few moments is just take each one of these verses, read that particular verse, and make a few observations as we think about what it means to be on mission with Jesus. In verse 24, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. So we have this word here, afflictions, and it's in a particular phrase related to Christ's Afflictions. The word affliction is, is actually found nine times. This Greek word appears nine times in the New Testament. But this is the only place where it's used in relationship to Jesus. The Greek word is hustorema, and this is what it means. It means need or want or deficiency. So it's kind of an odd phrase. Because Jesus fully gives up his life as suffering servant. He dies and he is raised from the dead. So does Paul mean here that Christ's sufferings were incomplete? Well, since his sufferings ultimately led to his death, that doesn't really make sense. The phraseology in our English Bibles, it just makes it a little bit difficult to understand what Paul is saying here. However, it is really important that we understand it. Because it impacts how those of us who believe in Jesus live out our faith. So I did a little digging on this phrase, and the New Interpreter's Bible Commentary offers the following observation. It says, Paul, as suffering apostle to the Gentiles, plays a major part in making up the deficiency through his unique missionary role. In this way, his share of the afflictions of Christ is not redemptive, but missionary in character. Now, I want you just to focus on that that observation for just a moment. Paul can say Christ's sufferings are incomplete because the story of salvation is still being written through the missionary work of disciples of Jesus. There's a time that's coming 
When the complete work and the suffering of Christ is realized on a cosmic scale, when he returns and calls us home. But until then, the commentary continues, Paul's suffering and ours, my insertion, is part of the fulfillment of God's plan in bringing in the consummation through the worldwide proclamation of the gospel. A lot of words to say this. We are partnering with Jesus and bringing many sons to glory. Paul rejoices in his sufferings because through these sufferings, he enters into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And we begin to understand this more clearly, I think, when we couple his words here with his words in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. I want to know Christ Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And I'm going to make an observation, and I'm going to see if you agree with me. I think that all believers share in the suffering of Christ. Would you agree with that statement? All believers suffer or share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. However, we are in a little bit of a dilemma. We in the United States don't like suffering. As a matter of fact, we generally avoid it at all cost. Is there anybody in the room who wakes up in the morning and says, boy, I just can't wait to get out there and get in a real difficult spot today. Anybody think like that? Well, no, most of us don't, right? We want to avoid suffering. We push it off. Sometimes this even creeps into the way that we treat one another, even under our own, our own roofs and our own homes. There was this woman who went with her husband to the doctor's office, and the doctor did a very, very thorough examination of her husband, and she called her into his office after, after, the, uh, after the physical, and he said, you know, your husband is really not in a good spot. Uh, he's suffering uh, from very severe stress disorder. And if you don't follow my instructions very carefully, I, I just don't know that this is going to turn out well for him. And so here's what I need you to do every morning. I need you to fix him a really healthy breakfast, and I just need you to be pleasant at all times. Make sure he gets a really, really good lunch. Love on him. Fix him a really, really good dinner. Don't, don't burden him with a lot of chores and, and don't discuss your problems with him. It's only going to make his stress work. Don't, don't nag him at all. If you can do this for the next 10 months to a year, I think your husband is going to regain his strength completely. So they get in the car and they go home. And on the way home, the husband asks his wife, well, what did the doctor say? And she said, you're going to die. So Paul... Here, he kind of challenges our aversion to discomfort. You know, I think Francis Chan really beautifully captures the power of Paul's example, what he's trying to help us understand here when he writes to, uh, uh, to the letters, uh, in the letters to the church. Uh, Chan writes, when I read about the Apostle Paul, I am challenged to become like him. And when I read of his longing for Christ, perseverance through suffering, and love for people, it stirs me. I want to look like him. I want his peace. Like Paul, I want to come to the end of my life and know that I didn't waste it. It's his example, not his words that move me. 
There's something in what Paul writes here. I, I think it's just so important that we understand this this morning. And I believe it is a truth of this text that you can't follow the suffering servant without some personal suffering. But in this particular case, we got to know what the word suffer means. When Paul's writing about suffering here, he's not talking about lashes across the back. He's not talking about the, the unfair treatment that he's receiving while he is in a Roman prison. He's actually talking about suffering in the sense of bearing one another's loads or carrying one another's loads. For when we suffer one another, it's like that we carry the extra loads for one another. We walk with each other. We support. We assist. We carry one another's burdens for a while. So when our elders ask us to pray, we don't just shrug our shoulders. We suffer them in that request. We carry that burden of prayer with them for a little while. When the invitation is given to serve in ministry, we don't say, you know, somebody really should do that. We ask instead, where's the form? I want to sign up. I want to carry this burden of ministry for a little while. When we're challenged, instead of bowing our backs and building a wall of division, we instead humbly ask, how can we build a bridge in the name of Jesus? You're, you're bringing it a little strong today, uh, Greg, and I just want to let you know what I'm telling you is nothing compared to what Scripture tells us about what will happen to those of us who follow Jesus, who commit to being a disciple of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 9, the text says, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will rise and lead you astray. And many lawlessness will be, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. In Acts chapter 5, verses 40 and 41, when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And then they, that's the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Revelation chapter 12, beginning at verse 7, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But... Um, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of the Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. They triumphed over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of his testimony, or their testimony. And I want you to see this line. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Therefore rejoice, you heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has gone down to you. Because of our victory, I want you to notice what happens. He is filled with fury. 
because he knows that his time is short. As I read passages like this, as I think about what Paul is enduring here and what he is calling the Christians at Colossae to understand, I am reminded of this additional truth from this scripture. Church, Christian character is not formed by Christian comfort. I'd go so far as to say that Christian comfort is an oxymoron. And we know what that is, right? Two words that don't really go together, like jumbo shrimp is kind of an oxymoron, right? Uh, rap music is kind of an oxymoron, you know, two words that don't go together. It's true here, Jesus, Jesus does say, I, I, I know this as I read through the Gospels, Jesus does say, come to me all you who labor and I will give you rest. But notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, come to me all you who are taking it easy and I will give you more rest. The rest that Jesus promises is for laborers. Think about your own life. Sitting still is not a cure for atrophy. Didn't Jesus teach, though, Greg, that blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted? Yes, but church, we don't mourn that which we keep. Mourning comes after loss. And when we live into our faith, I want you to hear this, when we live into our faith, losses are going to come. We can play it safe, but that phrase really isn't in the vocabulary of Christians. When we purposefully put ourselves in challenging situations, when we push the boundaries of our comfort zones, we begin to understand how much more we need Jesus. We begin to see how much more we need his power in our lives. And I'm not talking about pushing the comfort zones of biblical truth. I'm talking about worrying more about our 401ks than we worry about people who have no hope. People who have no purpose because they have no Jesus in their lives. Paul, who penned these words while chained to a Roman guard, understands this deep in his heart. He writes, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Paul describes himself here as a servant, but not just any servant. He is commissioned by God as an apostle. And it's really, really important in this context because his authority is being undermined by those who spread a false gospel. The suffering that they experience draws attention to self. The suffering Paul experiences draws attention to Jesus. And I believe that in and of itself is a great testimony to the truth of this scripture. So a question that comes to mind as we examine this text is, how is Paul suffering? Well, at this particular point in his ministry, I don't think he's suffering as much in the physical sense as much as he did during the earlier years of his ministry. He is in Rome. He is under house arrest. Yes, he is chained to a Roman guard. However, he can receive friends. He can send and he can receive friends letters. He has food. There's no limitation given on what he writes. If you remember the book of Ephesians, 
Also Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, all of these books are written while Paul is under house arrest in Rome. But I do think he's suffering in a very different way. And remember, it's to carry the load of others, to carry the burden of others. And I think he's suffering perhaps more than anything else at this time in his life and in his ministry because he can't be face to face with these and other believers who are being spiritually assaulted by these false teachers. I think his heart hurts because his motives are called into question by those who are more interested in making a name for themselves than praising the name of Jesus. See, I think part of Paul's suffering just comes from simply being a minister. When I wrote my dissertation a few years back, I uh, discovered that many members of the clergy indicate that they would change jobs if they could. A lot of them suffer from obesity, hypertension. Many suffer at rates, depression at rates that are higher than other Americans. In the late 1990s, there were research reports and even anecdotal evidence that showed the potential negative impact of ministry, the demands of ministry, how those can impact psychologically and spiritually the functioning of professional clergy. Early in the 21st century, among ministers, antidepressant use rose. And did you know that life expectancy among ministers has actually fallen? And even though almost every minister, almost every pastor feels pretty satisfied in ministry, a majority experience loneliness and discouragement. So think about this another way. Most of those who serve the highest calling are lonely and discouraged. Let me ask you a question. Can all of you relate regardless of your background, regardless of your profession? Surely we all have those times, right? When we're down or we're discouraged and maybe we pull up the computer and start looking at the classified ads, right? But Paul calls us to something here that is so much greater than vocation. The burden he feels here goes far beyond just general disappointment because someone said this or someone did that. There's, there's something very deep here that Paul is wrestling with because he loves these people. As a man who loved Jesus, as a man who loved these people, he, he so wants them to live in truth. As a man whose reputation was being undermined by false teachers, as a man who was held captive for a crime of, do you know what his crime was? His crime was speaking the truth. As a man who experienced all of these things, Paul understands the pressures of ministry. He understands the pressures of being on mission with Jesus. Through the power of Jesus, he, he doesn't really allow anyone to derail his mission. So I want to ask you this morning, what about you? What about the situation that you're in? Have the wheels come off of a relationship or in your workplace? Are you kind of smashed against the rocks this morning? Spiritually speaking or mentally or emotionally? 
Is your heart broken because of where you find yourself? Things not working out like you hoped or planned? Are you at the crossroads of, of giving up? Or possibly choosing a new path? Well, I can't tell you what to do in your situation, but I can encourage you to see here what Paul chooses and invite you to consider a similar choice, even in the midst of great pain or hurt. In Colossians 1.23, Paul refers to himself as a servant of the gospel. But in verse 25, he refers to himself as a servant of the church. So I just want to stop here for a second. I want to let that sink in. One of the greatest witnesses in the entire history of Christianity sees himself not as a leader of the church, but as a servant of the church. And I think there's another truth here that's worth processing. I think it would do us well to spend more time serving the church and less time trying to save it. Now, your first thought might be, I'm not really sure I like that observation very much. I want you just to walk a little ways with me here. The church has a Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. Neither you nor I will ever be good enough, smart enough, disciplined enough, tough enough, righteous enough, big enough, mean enough, or wise enough to out save our Savior. Church, as we move forward, we, we must surely follow the example of our brother Paul who focuses here much less on how we do church and instead focuses on why we do church. Because here's what happens when we focus more on the how than we do the why. Generally, when things don't go our way as Christians, we run from each other. Generally, when things don't go our way as Christians, we run from each other. What if we flipped that equation? What if instead we ran to each other? What if we stopped judging others and just started serving others? And I think these are really important questions to process. Otherwise, we're just going to keep going in the same circle, same song, 47th verse. But it doesn't have to be that way. The good news of Jesus keeps us on firm footing. I never judge you because of what you can or cannot do for me. Instead, I judge everything in my life because of what Jesus Christ does for me. And if that's not good enough, I, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. I want you to notice in verse 25, Paul says, again, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. And he continues, the mystery which has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. I'm not so sure that this is a mystery that God has kept hidden. It's, I think, a mystery that his people refuse to see. Paul doesn't hold us in suspense very long. He defines this mystery immediately by noting 
to these people of the Lord, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul, who has not visited face to face with these believers, is in partnership with Epaphras, who shared good news with them. And both of them are effective missionaries to this church in Colossae. One through encouraging words and one through encouraging presence. And both are necessary for planting and nourishing the seeds of good news. And here's, here's the great irony. Paul sets this entire section up. His suffering, their faithfulness, the glorious riches of this mystery, which is hope. Paul sets all of this up to point to one person, the one we proclaim, Jesus. In verse 28, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Church, it's all about Jesus. It's not about making sure that I, I get warm fuzzies when I come into a worship assembly. It's, it's not so that we live this sanitized life that is free from heartache and pain. It's not that we do this to avoid suffering, but it's, it's so that we remain humble enough in heart that we can receive proclamation and admonishment and teaching. These being pathways that when they converge with practice faith, make us fully mature in Christ. And here's the last truth of the morning, fully mature in Christ is a goal worth striving for. It was why Paul could close this section saying, to this end, this mature end in Christ, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to notice here that Paul toils and struggles on their behalf. But it's ultimately not his efforts that win the day. His energy is literally, if we were to read this in the Greek, his energy is in accordance with Christ's energy that he energizes in me in power. It's the exact same energy that's later mentioned in chapter 2 and verse 12 when used to describe the power of God that raised Christ from the dead. And if that power can can physically bring a dead man to life, then surely it can do the same for you and me, mentally, emotionally, and even more importantly, spiritually speaking, as we grow up in Jesus Christ. I began today's sermon by talking about a pair of socks. These socks were a labor of love. I was being carried by this sister before she ever knew my name, before she ever saw my face. In some ways, she was to me what the Apostle Paul was to the believers in Colossae for whom he labored. So as we think about Mission Sunday, it's about so much more than money. It's about an opportunity to, to choose a labor of love for the sake of the kingdom. 
We've shared four key truths from this text this morning. You, you can't follow the suffering servant without personal suffering. Christian character is not formed by Christian comfort. We should spend more time serving the church and less time trying to save it. Being fully mature in Jesus is a goal worth striving for. There are so many other truths in this text, truths worthy of our time and our imitation, but I, I just pray we're drawn deeply into these truths and ultimately transform transformed by them and one of the best ways to do that is to just live them you've heard about all kinds of mission opportunities today and you may not be able to to physically go but but you can carry those who can go forth and you can pray while you and they prepare yes even for those whose names you may never know and whose faces you may never see. May all we do as a church bring glory and honor to the name of Jesus, who is the Christ. And the whole church said, amen. We're going to share a song together this morning. Perhaps as you've heard the word of God, you've been convicted that you want to have your sins washed away and you want to be baptized in this place. What an incredible celebration that would be this morning. Perhaps you have another request on your heart, a prayer for healing. We sometimes ask folks to make their way down to the front if they're comfortable doing that and want to share with the whole church. If you're not in that place, some of our elders will be at the back of the room and they can meet you there and pray with you there. You can just turn to your neighbor and say, will you pray with me? We're all part of the priesthood of believers here. And so we don't do rank and file in the body. We're all in this together. And whatever's on your heart this morning and whatever is most appropriate for you, respond in your heart or publicly as we stand together and sing.